0: Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of By Study and By Faith, a series where we analyze critical thinking and learn critical thinking skills and apply them to LDS history and theology. I'm Zach Wright, and we've got a really great episode today. We're going to be talking a little bit about logic and kind of how it can be used to evaluate arguments. So if you've ever heard two people arguing with each other you've probably heard at some point one of them say to the other you're not being logical or something to that effect when when i heard the term logic i i usually thought of things like math and science or even more abstract ideas like things that things that were true or observable and to an extent those those aren't bad ways of describing it but at its core, logic is something that is used to evaluate arguments. It's a, it's a methodology. When I use the term argument, for instance, I'm not using the term like I just did in that example of of people yelling at each other. I'm using them kind of more as, a, as I would use the term a claim. You're making a claim and you're using certain facts to support that claim. And we do this all the time. We do this at work and just our daily life at school for me and also church as critical thinkers we really need to understand what logic is so that we can learn how to communicate more effectively analyze our own arguments and the arguments of others and become the kind of thinkers that will also be able to help build faith in God for other people and so we have a lot to talk about. Before we launch into that, though, I do have a couple of logistic things I want to be able to go over before we get started. I'll put a timestamp up here so you can skip to where uh, we wrap up with those kind of logistical stuff. One of the things I'm excited for is the upcoming FAIR conference happening on August 2nd, and it goes up through August 4th. And I'm really excited. There are a lot, there are gonna be a lot of really great speakers, a lot of friends that I know personally that are gonna be talking and I think it'll be really great. Um, The tickets are $150, but if you're a student, there's a new option now where you can pay $55 for a ticket. So it's just become a lot more accessible for uh, college students. It's just a really great environment. When you pay for the ticket, you're able to show up for the conference all three days, you get meals included. And you just get to be around a bunch of people who are actively learning about LDS History and LDS Theology. And you just have a lot of fun people to talk to. So definitely look forward to that. We hope to be able to see you there. Another thing is there's a scholarship that's available for students where you have five winners. After submitting an essay, will get access to two fair tickets each. And you'll just be able to enjoy all the benefits of being able to attend the conference. And even if you don't win, it's my understanding that you'll be able to get uh, an additional discount for when you actually get the tickets. So definitely, even if you don't win, if you wanna be able to show up to the conference and you're a student, definitely worth applying for the scholarship. Definitely give it a shot. Like I said, we'd love to see you there. Additionally, I'd also like to be able to once again refer everybody to a really good friend of mine's podcast and video series here on FAIR, Jennifer Roach's Come Follow Me with FAIR. It is, and I could, it is fantastic. It is wonderful. She is super, super smart. And she just kind of tackles the New Testament, just kind of following along with the Come Follow Me curriculum. And she just kind of answers questions that usually pop up whenever we talk about the New Testament with some of the rest of general Christianity. And so there's a lot of really great resources and materials there highly highly recommend you go check out her stuff but that should about wrap up all the logistics stuff so let's go ahead and get started by talking a little bit more about logic specifically we're going to be going over some of the basic terms just the tiniest bit of history behind what logic is then we're going to be focusing on building kind of arguments or the most basic kind of arguments founded on logic And then we're gonna talk a little bit about the difference between deductive reasoning and inductive reasoning, which are both kind of important. And it's important to be able to distinguish between the two. Naturally, there's a lot to discuss. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. So the roots of logic actually trace themselves back to Aristotle. You probably have heard of him at some point, but in case you haven't, just a brief synopsis, he was a Greek philosopher, lived through a lot of very important events in kind of Greek history. So for instance, he studied under Plato, who is another really famous philosopher. He got to see, he got to see Greece transition from a uh, Republican to basically an empire under Alexander the Great. And another cool thing that I learned is that he actually tutored Alexander the Great for a little bit. That was just kind of interesting, I didn't know that. But one of the, one of the great contributions he had to philosophy, was his discussion specifically on logic. Now, there are a lot of explanations as to what logic is. There are lots of sites and resources that you can look up online, and some of them are simpler than others, but suffice it to say that logic is based chiefly on propositions. Propositions are basically honestly, for all intents and purposes, they're ideas. And there's actually a really interesting quote that I was able to pull from when I was when I was researching this. It's from The History of Philosophy by A. C. Grayling. It says, Aristotle took it that the fundamental unit of logical interest is the proposition, the what is said by an utterance. This what is said being either true or false. What are the parts of a claim though? We still haven't figured that out yet. So I think it's actually easier to show than it is to tell. And so we're going to be talking a little bit about tomatoes today. Now, I'm not super fond of tomatoes, especially in their raw form. I think they they just don't taste super good, but they're actually rather easy to describe. You know, apart from the stem and the seeds, I suppose, a tomato for the most part is, you know, red. It's identifiable for its red color, at least as we understand it now it's just we, we we immediately jump to kind of an under a recognizable image in our head. So if I was to make a proposition about a tomato, I could say the tomato is red. That would be a proposition. Now it's again, it's not necessarily a sentence so for instance, I could say the tomato is red and, the redness quality is found in the tomato those two sentences would be sharing the same proposition just the idea that the tomato has a specific characteristic and that's where we start going into this idea of a subject and a predicate so the subject is basically any kind of object that is being described by the predicate so for instance the subject in that phrase would be the tomato and the predicate phrase would be is red so as you can see, the, the subject is being explained by the predicate. And uh, Grayling, in his book, he uses a similar example, only he uses snowflakes and the color white. So there's, there's usually a recognizable pattern as to how the subject and the predicate relate to each other. The, the next thing we have to go over for uh, logic is talking about the difference between universal and particular claims and also affirmative and negative claims. So universal in particular, it's honestly best described as are you talking about all of them? Are all tomatoes red? Or just a particular tomato, a particular type of tomato is red? Because as we know, there there are lots of different kinds of tomatoes and some of the tomatoes vary in color. One of the things that is useful is you're able to quantify how many of the specific subject is described by the predicate. Uh, affirmative and negative is is kind of similar. So again, it's this idea of, does it have this specific trait? Is the subject described by the predicate or is the subject not described by the predicate? Is the tomato red or is the tomato not red? So if I was to say all tomatoes are red, that would be a universal affirmative proposition. Or if Where if I was to say the tomato or this tomato is not red that would be a particular negative proposition so i I encourage you to to try playing around with that but just kind of stuff that you see it's it's not something that a lot of people are used to thinking about we we, a lot of the stuff that we we just do automatically we just don't think anything of it but i think it's useful to be able to kind of analyze exactly what we're doing when we're making claims and recognize things in life so we basically described already kind of how to quantify and how to qualify each of these subjects and predicates, or each of these propositions, through universal and particular and also affirmative and negative propositions. There are a few other categories that Aristotle talked about that I think are useful as we continue to talk about logic. So the list that Grayling kind of lists out, as well as other sources, they talk about species, which basically, for all intents and purposes, is like the definition of of a specific essence or something. So what makes a tomato a tomato? Like what is, what is the species of tomato? What's the definition of tomato? What are its qualities, its attributes? Kind of a thing. The genus is the part of something that's not unique to the kind of species, but it's also shared by other essences or other things so for instance a tomato is a fruit i mean i guess it's i guess it's also a vegetable basically a tomato is a fruit but it's not the only fruit right it's it's sharing that attribute with other fruits and so that would be kind of the genus it would be kind of an expansion upon the species you can talk about fruit generally kind of a thing the difference, or what is distinguish, or what distinguishes one species from another, what makes a tomato different from other fruits, excluding the fact that it's just disgusting. There's no bias there, I promise you. Properties. So this is kind of the the, the characteristics that make up the specific something. So this is a little bit different than the species. So this is this would be something like describing how the characteristics of tomato it has like skin on the outside it's kind of mushy and has seeds on the inside kind of a thing that those would be the properties of a tomato and the accidents which is basically a, a property of something that a subject has right now but doesn't necessarily always have to have so for instance the tomato we've been talking about so far is red but it doesn't always have to be a red tomato. Sometimes tomatoes come in different shapes, colors, and sizes. So those would all be specific accidents of the tomato. That was kind of an info dump, but to, to recap, we discussed how propositions have a subject and a predicate. We also discussed how different propositions can be either universal or particular depending on how many of the specific subject you're talking about is described by the predicate. And they can also be affirmative or negative, where they talk about whether or not the subject is actually described by the predicate. Is it or isn't it kind of a thing. We also talked about five categories that are useful in kind of discussing what propositions are. They, they kind of differentiate between different aspects of the subject so that you can use, you can talk about different aspects of a subject using different predicates kind of a thing next we're going to be talking a little bit about arguments so, or specifically syllogisms which is kind of the most basic kind of argument that was devised by aristotle when he wanted to talk about something or prove something propositions when they're used as a part of an argument are called premises i've also heard people use the term axiom but that, those are basically the same thing. We're gonna be using the term premise though. So premises, they're all they are are just propositions that are used in an argument to support some kind of conclusion. And a syllogism is a form of stacking premises on top of each other to form a conclusion. So the example that I wrote down here, or one example, it would be if you have the first premise, all A's, are B's. And you have premise 2 which is all C's are A's. And with both of those premises you can arrive at the conclusion that all C's are B's. Now that, that might be a little bit tricky but all we need to do is just switch A for tomatoes, B for fruit, and C for cherry tomatoes and we suddenly reconstruct it into something that's a little bit more recognizable. So for instance The first premise turns into all tomatoes are fruit and the second premise turns into all cherry tomatoes are tomatoes so therefore we can arrive at the conclusion that all cherry tomatoes are fruit so that's a super that's a super basic example that would be also kind of useful but i hope that you are able to kind of see how that can be expanded upon to to create more complex arguments in a way I, I also try to form this this very episode or this very article on, on a syllogistic argument. So my first premise in this case would be people run into problems. Like we as human beings have problems to solve, things we want to accomplish and obstacles that get in our way. And I I submit the premise that logic can be a tool that can be used to help answer some of these questions or resolve some of these problems and so my conclusion is by using logic we can solve some of the problems we run into and that can that, that may sound a little bit repetitive but that's more or less kind of what i'm trying to do when i'm writing this article i'm making a very complex argument by just me trying to demonstrate what logic is, and see if I can help convince you that logic can be useful in solving some of these problems. We can actually use an example of this in church history. The 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon lists Joseph Smith as being the author and proprietor of the Book of Mormon. So, some critics over the course of the past few decades have posited that this is actually Joseph Smith just admitting subliminally that he actually just made up the book of mormon on the fly kind of a thing and or maybe not on the fly I guess it depends but basically they try to use this phrase and pass it off as him claiming to have made up the book of mormon and that it wasn't there wasn't actually an actual people that were called nephites or lamanites and that it was all just some kind of fictitious story that Joseph made up. This argument has a few problems with it. Um, There are a few links that I'll that I'll go ahead and put if you want to be able to look a bit more deeply into that. But the short answer is basically that there were like New York copyright laws that were that were existing that basically said that anybody who tried to get a copyright for anything had to say that they were an author or a proprietor or both and so it was, there's there's a bit more than meets the eye here, but we can actually use a syllogism to help kind of answer this specific question or posit some kind of explanation for what's actually going on here. The first premise in this instance would be Joseph needed to publish the Book of Mormon. The second premise would be to publish the Book of Mormon, he needs to secure a copyright, which involved him labeling himself as author and proprietor of... The book of Mormon, according to new york laws a third premise in this case because we, we you can have as many premises or propositions as you need in order to make an argument but a third proposition would be translators for the 1824 kjv bible also were sometimes put down as author that didn't happen in new york i think that specific one happened in england but it helps it goes to show that Certain laws can be instituted that kind of that don't necessarily fit the mold perfectly as to what's actually going on with the specific text. So in this case, the conclusion that we can draw from these premises would be: Joseph secured a copyright to publish the Book of Mormon, in which he labeled himself as the author and proprietor, and clarified both in the text itself and and also throughout his life, that he only translated the book, that he didn't necessarily make it up. So that's an example of a kind of syllogistic argument where a collection of premises help demonstrate a specific kind of conclusion. Now we're gonna shift into deductive and inductive reasoning because I think critical thinkers will be quick to point out that deductive arguments can sometimes be a little bit tricky because they rely on the idea that premises exist and that the facts found within those premises don't change. So, for instance, this tomato, you know, at least for right now, wouldn't necessarily change. But we know that's not true. Things change all the time. That tomato isn't always going to look like that. And so it's a little bit tricky because when we make deductive arguments, there is some kind of assumption that the premises behind it don't change. And a lot of the things that we deal with in life do change. And this is particularly true with a lot of people-based subjects. So for instance, um, politics. Things are constantly changing because people always are kind of learning and they're changing their opinions. And another similarly controversial topic that's also people based is religion. People learn things, they gain additional knowledge, things kind of shift around and we can't always necessarily rely on the idea that people will act as they have acted previously. And so there is a bit of there is a bit of stringency and strictness that is required for deductive arguments to be made. But that actually transitions rather well into what we're gonna talk about next, kind of the difference between deductive and inductive arguments. So what we've talked about so far is deductive reasoning, or this idea that premises logically entail uh, its conclusion, or a specific conclusion. But the other kind of reasoning is referred to as inductive reasoning, and it's more understood as observations, allowing us to group things together to arrive at a specific conclusion. So an example of this would be, uh, most members of the church are nice. And Zach is a member of the church. Therefore, Zach is nice. Kind of a thing. So, as you can see, there's a bit of a difference here in this specific argument. With deductive reasoning, as long as we think that premise one and premise two are true, then we must agree that the conclusion must be true. But with inductive reasoning, that's not always necessarily the case. Just because I'm a member of the church doesn't necessarily entail that I'm a nice guy. You would have to get to know me, and then you would have to really kind of see for yourself the kind of person that I am in order to arrive at that conclusion. In this case, the the conclusion is only likely true or possibly true. So in this way, with a a lot of arguments, people prefer deductive reasoning over inductive reasoning just by virtue of the fact that with deductive reasoning you can provide far more certainty than you can with inductive reasoning. However, as we just talked about, deductive reasoning isn't always possible. So... A combination of deductive and inductive reasoning may be helpful as we try to talk about arguments and we talk about certain aspects of LDS history, LDS theology, or just whatever idea we may be trying to convey to others. Basically, if you want to know exactly what inductive reasoning is, inductive reasoning is this, is this idea that we can observe different patterns in specific groups and arrive at conclusions based on those observations because we group those things into a kind of conclusion. So an example of this that I I was able to find online was the following phrase. Every raven in a random sample of 3200 ravens is black. This strongly supports the following conclusion that all ravens are black. Now, for those of you who are statistics nerds, kind of like me. That 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 kind of phraseology sounds super familiar to you. We can use statistics to be able to kind of understand correlations and make connections with one or more variables or make some kind of analysis based on trends that we see through repeated sampling. That that's a that's a more technical way of explaining inductive reasoning, and I think it's a useful it's a useful kind of metaphor to say that inductive reasoning is to observational studies and statistics, or those kinds of statistics, as deductive reasoning is related to kind of experimentation, where we define some kind of causality based on certain premises that we've found. And like with traditional statistics, there is a lot of certainty that can be gained from just being able to observe trends. However, we also have to, again, go back to this idea that it can't always give us a degree of certainty because even if we're not analyzing 1,001 people and a 1,000 people do the exact same thing, there is still that one minuscule chance that the last person is gonna do something completely different. And that's just something that we have to deal with and something we have to account for as critical thinkers. We have to be able to understand the strengths and weaknesses of all kinds of reasoning as we as we try making arguments and as we try analyzing sources, kind of like what we talked about in our last article. And so it's something that we have to keep in mind as we, as we continue, or I guess in our instance, kind of wrap this up. Basically, as critical thinkers, I urge you to be able to pull from the best possible sources and use the right kind of logic for the right job, or use the kind right kind of reasoning for the right job, and just be be wary and humble. That as you make these arguments, you may have to you may have to change some of the premises based on new information. You may have to reevaluate your previous position based on new evidence. I mean, that's also kind of the premise behind revelation if you think about it it's this idea that we're constantly learning new things and we need to be willing to accept the new truth or the the truth that we're learning as we go throughout our lives because if we if we begin to stagnate then suddenly we start running into problems because even if the things that we believe or the things that we were holding on to are true it, it kind of gives us this tunnel vision that we can't really get out of. And it becomes really difficult to be able to progress in our thinking, to learn. Because learning in, in all reality is really heavily based on this idea of connecting premises and arriving at a conclusion. We can't learn if we're not willing to adapt to this new kind of information or new revelation. But I digress a little bit. In conclusion, we talked about a lot today. And I'm probably going to go back over other aspects of logic because I do think that there's a lot more that we can go over. But I think this is a good start for us. We talked a little bit about how propositions are made, subjects and predicates, the different kinds of ways to describe different subjects with predicates by using categories, quantifiers, qualifiers, stuff like that. We also talked about how to form an argument, how to form a syllogism and kind of how premises work and also learn how to differentiate between inductive reasoning and deductive reasoning, which is a very useful skill for us as critical thinkers. One last thing I wanted to be able to go over before we wrap up kind of brings us back to the beginning. I used the example of two people kind of in this shouting match where people, where one accuses the other, you're not being logical kind of a thing. And I, I, I use that very example specifically because as you can probably imagine when people are kind of super, super angry and super emotional, it's not, it's not easy to hold true to specific premises. Emotions can cloud our judgment in that respect. Well, I'm going to recommend that we avoid that kind of dialogue because when we're talking about arguments in general, and you're in an active discussion with people, it's very easy to become riled up or very passionate about what you're talking about, but it, most of the time, and it's worth noting that there is, there is a decent amount of study proof to demonstrate this, that when we, when we have negative emotions, those, uh, us expressing those negative emotions is more likely to bring up other negative emotions, and it's difficult for us as critical thinkers, and I would say as children of God, to be able to interact with other people if all of us just have negative feelings. Um, we've been counseled repeatedly that we are to be peacemakers, just as much as we are to be advocates for the truth, and that's a delicate, it's a delicate line to walk, and I, I no one's perfect at it but i would assert that as we are open-minded and as we are humble and as we are willing to actively engage with other people in a positive and in a in a christ-like way we are able to learn more and we are able to help convince other people of the truth that we have than if we were to do anything else. But that's kind of mostly what I wanted to talk about today. So next time we're going to be talking about logical fallacies. And I'm super excited about that. There's a lot of really great stuff I want to be able to go over that. So be sure to stay tuned for the next episode that comes out in a couple of weeks. And again... Also, please get FAIR tickets for the upcoming FAIR conference. We want to see you there. We're excited to see you. But in the meantime, just be sure to have a fantastic rest of your day.